Paul was well known to the Galatians. He came into Galatia preaching the gospel revealed to him by Jesus Christ. The Galatians knew Paul. He stayed with them for a time. He lived with them. He ate with them. He prayed with them. And no doubt he preached to them. When he fell ill, well, they nursed him back to health. And once he'd recovered, they sent him on his way. No doubt, they also prayed for Paul, and they encouraged him when he left Galatia to continue his work elsewhere as the apostle to the Gentiles. But after Paul left the area, a group of false teachers known to us as the Judaizers entered the area and began attacking Paul's gospel. Paul, they said, was denying that obedience to the law was required of God's people, and that he was teaching Gentile converts that they need not submit to circumcision or produce works of law to be numbered among the people of God. The Judaizers resented the freedom enjoyed by these new Gentile converts, and the Judaizers even sought to spy on their liberty to see if the Gentiles who were following Paul demonstrated sufficient zeal for obedience to the law. But the Judaizers also attacked Paul on a deeply personal level. They claimed he was an apostate to Israel, that he was a religious huckster trying to attract a group of followers into himself, and that he was not doing the Lord's work, but was leading the Galatians astray. Sadly, Paul must defend himself and his apostolic call to people who knew him very well, but who now had come to question his motives. He must prove that his gospel is the same as that preached by the other apostles, the twelve, and that he and his companion Barnabas had received the blessing of all of Jesus' disciples, as well as the Jerusalem church. As Paul does so in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10 through 2, verse 11, our text for this episode, we learn a great deal about Paul and his own personal biography, as well as learning more about that gospel which Paul has been preaching. I'm Kim Riddlebarger, your host for the next hour or so, and this is the Blessed Hope Podcast. We are continuing with our series on the book of Galatians, and this is our third episode. In this section of Galatians, we are talking about the source of Paul's gospel. As Paul continues to make his point, which is that the false gospel of the Judaizers is a dangerous misreading of redemptive history, virtually ignoring Jesus Christ's role in fulfilling the requirements of the Sinai Covenant, the Apostle Paul recounts his personal history, focusing upon the significant events and the timeline which followed his conversion. The purpose of the details of Paul's biography at this point in his Galatian letter is to further explain the source of his gospel. And as he does so, we get an important, if brief, look at Paul's biography, including his life before his conversion, his time in Arabia. That's not the Arabian Peninsula, but it's the Nabataean kingdom that's located south of Damascus and to the east of Jerusalem. And of course, that kingdom has its amazing capital in Petra, the Red Rock City. Paul goes on to talk about his subsequent meeting with Peter and James in Jerusalem. Now, recounting this history is vital to Paul's defense of his apostolic authority at the beginning of his Gentile mission, and that led to his preaching throughout the Galatian region. Paul must explain how he went from being a rising star in Judaism and one of the chief opponents of Christianity to becoming the apostle to the Gentiles, who is now preaching the gospel of Christ crucified, a gospel which is the same as that taught by all the other apostles. So as we turn to the first part of our text, in verses 11 through 12 of chapter 1, we read the following. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, 
but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In verses 11 to 12, Paul makes his first point in defense of his apostolic office and his gospel. The sad fact that Paul would have his readers know, that tells us that the Galatians either forgot, which is possible, or they ignore, which is also possible, or they rejected, which we know some had done, or else they just didn't know and have no excuse. They did not know, they forgot, they ignored the truth they are to embrace and then follow. To express his concern for the Galatians, Paul uses a rather friendly term, brothers, when speaking to the Galatians, a term which is drawn from the Old Testament, and it's used in reference to his fellow Israelites. But Paul uses this word, brothers, sparingly with the Galatians, and there's the real possibility that he uses the term here to shame the Galatians, reminding them that genuine brothers, those whose bond of fellowship arises from their faith in Jesus Christ, that they should know the truth Paul taught them when he was with them previously. But they don't. And that is a problem. To give this point some teeth, Paul reiterates that the gospel of Christ crucified is not a figment of his imagination. The gospel which Paul preached in Galatia was personally revealed to him by Jesus. This gospel is centered in the objective and historical work of Jesus Christ for us. His life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection according to the scriptures. As Paul puts it very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. In Romans 1, 16 to 17, Paul defines the gospel in terms of the revelation of the righteousness of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if preaching that gospel is recounting the facts associated with Christ's messianic mission, the charge of novelty made against Paul by his Judaizing opponents collapses, since the facts surrounding Christ's death and resurrection by this time were common knowledge. Given the offense of the gospel and its character as a stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the Gentile, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul would never have invented such a gospel or sacrificed so much on a personal level to preach an utterly offensive message in order to create, supposedly, a circle of followers. It was also well known among the Jewish community that at one time, Paul opposed the new sect of Christians with great zeal. In fact, sufficient zeal for Paul to travel the 135 miles to Damascus to keep this fledgling Christian movement from spreading beyond the confines of Judea. Many Christians apparently fled to Damascus from Jerusalem immediately after the martyrdom of Stephen, as we read in Acts chapter 7, to join Christians already in the Damascus area. In Acts 1.8, we learn that Paul wholeheartedly approved of Stephen's execution by stoning. If you've ever been hit with a rock, you know how painful that must be. And Paul helped to instigate a great persecution of Christians in Jerusalem. Paul's zeal was so great, he's described as dragging men and women off to prison, according to Luke's account in Acts chapter 8, verses 1-3. through 3. What accounts for such a dramatic change in Paul after he had participated in this persecution and then served as a Sanhedrin's agent to make the trek to Jerusalem to inform the Jewish leaders there of this new wave of infidels fleeing uh, to their city to escape justice back in Jerusalem? Well, the Judaizers may have been claiming that Paul had departed from Jewish Christianity to gain followers for himself or that he was somehow self-deceived and therefore a false teacher. Well, Paul blows that accusation apart by merely recounting the reason for the change. The appearance of Jesus to him, who said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In Acts chapter 9, verse 4. Paul spells out to the Galatians how, that at the time of his conversion, the message he's now preaching was revealed to him by none other than the risen Jesus. As Paul puts it in Galatians 1.16, God was pleased to reveal his Son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. 
God confirmed this call through the ministry of Ananias, a Christian in Damascus, and later through the other apostles, who confirmed the content of Paul's gospel. And that's why Paul can state in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1-3, through that the gospel he preached to the Corinthians is what I received and delivered to you. The word Paul uses to receive, paralambano, is a technical term that the rabbis used to describe the careful transmission of sacred tradition. Paul's call to this apostolic office in which the content of the gospel is revealed to him by the Lord was also confirmed and flushed out in more detail by Paul's later contact with the other apostles. Now, we do not know if Paul ever personally witnessed Jesus preach or teach or if he'd even seen Jesus before our Lord's death and resurrection. Regardless, there was much for Paul to learn from the original apostles, such as the details of Christ's missionary commission found in the Gospels, along with further elaboration of the basic historical facts found in the content of those sermons that are recorded for us in the first eight chapters of the book of Acts, and material in those sermons was likely passed on to Paul by Peter during Paul's 15-day stay with Peter, roughly three years after Paul's own conversion. And we get a sense of that in Galatians 1.18 and in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and following. Now, in addition, there was our Lord's own teaching, which certainly had been memorized and then passed on to the apostolic circle, so they could, in turn, preach the message that Jesus had taught all of them. There are over 40 possible echoes of a saying of Jesus distributed throughout all the Pauline letters. And so after Jesus Christ appeared to him, the primary influence upon Paul's thinking about the Old Testament, most of which Paul had memorized or certainly could cite with great familiarity, his interpretive grid was the lens of the fulfillment of so many of the Old Testament prophecies in and through the Messianic mission of Jesus. And so Old Testament images, Old Testament phraseology are in the background of virtually everything Paul teaches and writes, and the echoes that appear throughout his letters, but now understood and reinterpreted in light of Jesus' messianic mission. And so this mitigates the assertion made by critical scholars who say that Paul had little, if any, first-hand knowledge of Jesus, hence this absurd contention that Paul was somehow the founder of Christianity. Well, as we look back at Paul's earlier career, which he himself describes, let's read verses 13 through 14 of chapter 1, where Paul lays this out. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and violently tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. The second line of defense taken by Paul is found in verses 13 to 14, where Paul recounts his own personal history as both a persecutor of the church and as a young buck who was rapidly advancing in Judaism. Now, as just mentioned, Paul acted in a violent way, hunting down and arresting Christians in Jerusalem. He was fully bent on destroying Christ's church before it could spread beyond the confines of Jerusalem. And yet someone with Paul's background, and who undergoes such a sudden and dramatic conversion, might turn out to be someone whose character is suspect, or someone who faces serious mental health challenges. The Galatians had heard of Paul's former way of life as the rising star in Judaism, and the Judaizers had turned this around and were using his past against him for their own advantage. We can hear them claiming that Paul is a dangerous lone ranger. He's a theological innovator. He's a religious entrepreneur seeking to create his own movement. The term Paul uses here of himself to persecute comes from a word that means to pursue or hunt down, as in a quest for game. Paul advanced in Judaism as a trailblazer, relentlessly pursuing all of those whom he regarded as enemies of the religion of Israel. According to Luke in Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 4, Paul even went house to house looking for Christians only to discover that when they fled from him, they took the gospel with them and that caused it to spread even further. 
the old law of unintended consequences. Paul refers to his prior zeal in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9 when he speaks of himself as the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. In Philippians 3 verse 6, he describes himself as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. No doubt, much of that activity took place in Jerusalem, as mentioned in Acts chapter 7 to 8. But Paul's intention to stop the spread of Christianity extended at least as far as Damascus and likely beyond. Because in Acts 26.11, Paul says, I punished Christians often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul's advance in Judaism, as he mentioned here, echoes our Lord's advance or his increase in wisdom and stature that's mentioned in Luke 2.52 as Jesus grew from an infant into a child and then a young man. There's also a loud echo from the account of Aaron's grandson Phinehas, whose zeal in keeping the law is recounted for us in Numbers 25, verses 6-15, through 15, when we read that an Israelite brought a Midianite woman into his tent in the sight of all Israel, and Phinehas ran a spear through the couple in flagrante delecto. I recall reading that passage to my kids and them wondering how it was Phinehas could throw one spear and it go through two people, and I simply explained to them that the spear was really sharp and he threw it really hard. The account of Phinehas, whose zeal for Yahweh's jealousy was widely hailed throughout Judaism, well, that came to the mind of the disciples when Jesus drove the money changer from the temple, as we read in John 2.17. In the spirit of Phinehas, Saul of Tarsus' personal ambition was to cut down all opposition to Judaism, exceeding all of his contemporaries in his zeal for the faith of their fathers. Paul was a new Phinehas. He was zealous for the religion of Israel. Well, in verses 15 to 17, Paul now talks about his apostolic call and his conversion. And so we read beginning in verse 15, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. The third point Paul makes in his own defense is reminding the Galatians here in verses 15 to 17 of the sovereign and gracious nature of God's call to his office of apostle to the Gentiles. Jesus appeared to Paul on the Damascus road about three years after our Lord's crucifixion and resurrection, and probably not long after the martyrdom of Stephen. Paul now looks back on his life through the eyes of faith. And so in one sense, his call to this apostolic office was a call from his birth, literally from his mother's womb. And Paul's emphasis here falls upon God's sovereignty, God's act in calling him to faith, and then equipping him to be the preeminent missionary to the Gentiles. The God who called him to his office is the same God who called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldees to enter the land of promise. And that same God later called Moses to lead the people of Israel from their bondage in Egypt to cross the Red Sea and to eventually enter the same land which God promised to Abraham in fulfillment of that promise. In speaking of his birth and his life in this way, Paul is placing himself squarely in the history of Israel. And he knows that by speaking like this, that anybody who's familiar with the Old Testament is immediately going to think of Jeremiah about whom Yahweh declared in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Paul's words here also hearken us back to the servant song of Isaiah 49, verses 1-7, through where the prophet Isaiah foretells that Jesus, the coming servant and the Messiah, that he would be a light to the Gentiles and he would bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. 
And so it's not accidental that Isaiah's prophecy is actually quoted by Paul and Barnabas while they're preaching in the city in Antioch, one of the cities of Galatia. Luke's account of this in Acts 13, 46-15 tells us exactly what happened. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly while in Sydney and Antioch, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Like the prophets of Israel, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Paul was chosen by God before his own birth to preach Jesus Christ to the nations. Here Paul is now a bondservant of Jesus Christ, that servant king foretold by Isaiah. And it's in that light that Paul speaks of God as revealing his son to him, literally an apocalypsis, an unveiling. That unveiling occurred on the Damascus Road when the scales, symbolic of unbelief, when they fell from Paul's eyes. According to Luke in Acts chapter 9, verses 8 to 9, the appearance of Jesus left Paul blind, and he was helpless. Saul rose from the ground, we read, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Well, Paul will mention trouble with his eyesight in Galatians 6 verse 11, but we don't know if there's a connection to his blindness when Jesus appeared to him, or if Paul had subsequently contracted one of the many common eye ailments of his day, uh, like conjunctivitis, and it may just have been that Paul needed glasses, something that were unknown in the ancient world. We do know that Damascus is one of the oldest continually inhabited cities in the world. It's mentioned in Genesis 14, verse 15, and chapter 15, verse 2, as being very prominent in the days of Abraham. We know very little about the Christians who were in Damascus when Paul arrived, beside the fact that the Holy Spirit had led one of them, Ananias, to minister to Paul. The story of Paul's time in Damascus from Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through verse 25 is very well worth reading. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And he's not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. 
It is remarkable that Paul began preaching just as soon as he regained his sight and strength and after being baptized. Saul is now Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He now went to the very same synagogues that he had set out to warn about Christian refugees, and to the shock of those in the synagogues, Paul began to preach Christ and him crucified. And his preaching is said to confound the Jews by proving that Jesus is the Christ. In other words, Paul's probably using messianic prophecy and its fulfillment in Christ to make the case that Jesus was Israel's Messiah and that Israel's long-anticipated salvation from sin and this glorious promised restoration was accomplished by Jesus through his own life of obedience, his death upon the cross, and then his bodily resurrection. The tables were turned on Paul. He had been a persecutor, the persecutor, but now he is the persecuted. He was a man filled with rage, seeking to hunt down and arrest Christians. Now it's Paul who is the object of hatred from those to whom he was preaching, who in turn were now seeking to arrest, imprison, and very likely execute him, just as they had Stephen. Jesus commissioned Paul to preach the gospel which Jesus revealed to him. But that gospel stirred Paul's countrymen to wrath and anger, and very soon they were plotting to kill Paul, who learned of their plot and made his escape from Damascus over the city's wall. But instead of returning home to Jerusalem, Paul went to Arabia before eventually returning to Jerusalem three years later. Now, this probably is the wilderness area south of Damascus, It's east of Jerusalem. It's in modern-day Jordan, not limited to the Arabian Peninsula. But some have speculated that Paul went out into the wilderness to commune with God, as Moses and Elijah had done. Some thought he might even have gone to Mount Sinai. But I think it more likely that Paul went into that region in obedience to fulfill his mission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, that gospel that Jesus had just revealed to him. How long Paul stayed in the wilderness of Arabia is unknown to us, but we do know that at some point he returned to Damascus. This account of Paul's conversion is truly amazing, and it certainly was worth our consideration. But before we return to Galatians and then consider Paul's time in Jerusalem, where he meets with Peter and James and John, and then heads back to Tarsus, his hometown, to continue his Gentile mission, I'd like to take a moment and simply ask you for your help. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Blessed Hope Podcast, would you be willing to tell your friends about the Blessed Hope? I don't mean the Blessed Hope, the glorious return of our Savior Jesus. I'm thinking of something much more mundane, this Blessed Hope podcast. The podcast is new, and if you think the content here is worthwhile, would you please tell your friends, family, and church folk that you know to give it a listen? Perhaps you'd even consider spreading the word about the Blessed Hope podcast through your own social media accounts. That would really help. But word of mouth and referrals from people who've heard the podcast and like it are far and away the best way for the Blessed Hope's audience to grow. Now, don't forget that show notes for each episode are posted at the Riddle blog. That's my blog. The address is kimriddlebarger.com. One word, kimriddlebarger.com, all lowercase, kimriddlebarger.com. There are lots of free resources available there. More are continually being added. So while you're looking through the show notes or listening to the podcast, feel free to look around in the various resource categories. You can also leave me feedback at the Riddle blog in the Contact Me section. Feedback is very helpful to me since the podcast is new, and as you can tell, I'm still learning. You can even ask questions that I may answer in future podcasts, especially if they relate to the topic And if I think others who like the Blessed Hope might find those questions helpful. But most important of all, make sure you've given the book of Galatians a good read. Maybe once, maybe twice, all the way through. It will profit you greatly.
Help me out. Please send your comments and your feedback my way and check out the Riddle blog at kimriddlebarger.com. And now it's back to the Blessed Hope. As we continue to work our way through the text of Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 through chapter 2, verse 10, let's look at verses 18 to 20 of chapter 1, where Paul talks about meeting the members of the Jerusalem church. He says in verse 18 and following, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. That's Peter. Cephas is Peter's Aramaic name. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. The fourth point Paul raises in defense of his authority over against the Judaizers in verses 18 to 20 is to recount his two post-conversion visits to Jerusalem. The first, after his return from Damascus, and the second, after his subsequent ministry in Syria and Cilicia. And that's a single Roman province with two large cities, Syrian Antioch and Tarsus. Tarsus, of course, is Paul's hometown. Paul's first trip to Jerusalem included a 15-day stay with Cephas. In Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 27, Luke recounts, When Paul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he'd seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he'd preached boldly in the name of Jesus. We have to imagine for a minute hearing that the most notorious enemy of the Christian faith, someone who had once sought your arrest and your imprisonment, that 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 person had been converted and that they now want to meet with you, Well, I think a fair bit of skepticism and apprehension is probably in order. Is this a trick? Is this a plot by the Sanhedrin? Well, thankfully, Barnabas fulfilled the role for Paul in Jerusalem that Ananias had played in Damascus. Eventually, Paul and Peter did get together, and we can only imagine what they discussed. Wouldn't you love to have an audio recording of that 15-day discussion, or at least most of it? Wow. Peter must have been a tremendous source of information to Paul regarding the historical events that surrounded the life and ministry of our Lord. And during this same visit, Paul also met with James, who is the Lord's brother. But Paul didn't spend all his time with Peter and James, because according to Acts 9, 28-30, Paul went in and out among them, that is, the apostles at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists but they were seeking to kill him. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews, as was Paul, who himself had been raised in a Hellenistic Jewish home as a Roman citizen in Tarsus, now modern Turkey. Well, once again, Paul's former countrymen tried to kill him. The point is that opposition to his later ministry in Galatia was really nothing new. Paul had dealt with personal danger, But it was the way in which the Judaizers had undermined entire Christian congregations throughout Galatia that was something altogether new to him. And Paul's going to contend against them with everything in him because he knows that the gospel is at stake. Well, as we press ahead, Paul talks about his time in Syria and Cilicia in verse 21 through 24 of chapter 1. He tells us, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Well, here Paul explains to the Galatians how he'd labored in Cilicia and Tarsus, they're nearby to them, even though his conversion was not yet widely known throughout the churches. Luke tells us that Paul was in this region because of the Hellenists, had driven him out of Jerusalem after his stay with Peter. According to Acts 9, verses 30-31, when the brothers learned of the Hellenist plot against Paul, they brought him down to Caesarea, which is the closest seaport, and they sent him off to Tarsus. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord 
and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This was a period of great growth as the gospel was expanding beyond Jerusalem into Gentile regions in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 49. It was a time of peace, meaning there was little persecution, and there was great awe at the things that the Lord was doing among his people. And as the gospel was spreading, no doubt some of this was due to the preaching of Paul, and people were learning of Paul's conversion and then praising God for it. It's starting to become clear to all that this dangerous wolf had become a sheep and even a shepherd. Well, that brings us to the account of the conference in Jerusalem in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. Very significant event and important we read through the passage and then take some time to think about what went on here. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to me to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Here in Galatians 2, verses 1 to 10, Paul describes this second visit to Jerusalem. And I think some chronology and historical background here is probably helpful. So let's start with what we know about Paul's background. We know that Saul of Tarsus was born in the same decade as Jesus. They're within 10 or so years of each other. We don't know Saul's date of birth because the Jews didn't consider birthdays important, even if the Romans did. Tarsus is a city on the southern coast of modern Turkey. It's Paul's hometown It's not far from Galatia, and it's now home to some three million people. The church father, Jerome, claims that Paul's parents were originally from Galilee, which meant that Aramaic and Hebrew were spoken in the home, even if Paul grew up in a rather Hellenistic culture there in Asia Minor and was fluent in both Latin and probably Greek. We also know that Paul was a Roman citizen. That will become important later on. He does say that his father was from the tribe of Benjamin in Philippians 3, verse 5, which the tribe of Benjamin included tribal land just to the north and west of Jerusalem. Paul was trained as a Pharisee in Jerusalem, according to Acts 22, verse 3. He was trained by one of the leading rabbis of that period, Gamaliel, who was a son or a grandson of the infantile rabbi Hillel. Paul speaks of himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews in Philippians 3, 5, that may mean he had no Gentile blood, or that he's contrasting himself with these Hellenistic Greeks around whom he'd been raised. Paul is also trained as a tent maker, according to Acts 18, 3. That's his secular vocation. That's his day job. And if Paul had reached the status of rabbi by the time he appears in the biblical account, he would certainly have been married because that was a requirement for rabbis. But by the time he writes his first Corinthian letter in AD 55 to 56, Paul is obviously not married. And so the presumption is that Mrs. Paul had died by that time and that Paul was a widower, but we can't say for sure. There's also a very interesting physical description of Paul written about 160 AD in an apocryphal writing known as the Acts of Paul. And so its veracity is a matter of some debate, but 
Oftentimes there's enough truth in those kind of accounts that they have, they gain acceptance because there's just something to them. So here's what we have. And he, Onesiphorus, proceeded along the royal highway to Lystra and stood expecting him. According to the information of Titus, he inspected all that came. And he saw Paul coming. A man small in stature, bald-headed, good for Paul, crooked in legs, like R.C. Sproul, healthy, with eyebrows joining, so he's got a unibrow like Anthony Davis, a nose rather long that is somewhat hooked, literally, full of grace, for he sometimes appeared like a man, but sometimes he had the face of an angel. That's obviously a reference to his, his countenance. If we date Paul's conversion about AD 33, this would mean that his first visit to Jerusalem occurred about AD 35 to 36. And after being threatened by the Hellenists, Paul left Jerusalem. He headed north. The Texas went down, but that actually is confusing. And then likely remained in and around Syria and Cilicia until about AD 46, when Paul makes this second visit to Jerusalem as recounted here. The period of time from Paul's conversion until his second visit to Jerusalem is approximately 12 to 14 years, give or take a few months. During this time, Tiberius was emperor. He died in 37. Then Gaius, who's better known to us as the sadistic Caligula, died in 41. They ruled the empire, while current emperor, when Paul writes Galatians, was Claudius, who died in AD 54. And so this tells us that there's nothing fictional here. This is concrete history. Real places at specific times, the people mentioned here had parents. They had home addresses. They really lived. They had people who knew them and who loved them. So we're talking about concrete history. Very important point. Paul's second visit to Jerusalem, that is after his conversion, was likely the famine relief visit mentioned in Acts 11 verses 27 to 30. This visit occurs prior to the Jerusalem Council described in Acts 15, and that's a very important point as we discussed in our opening episode. We can put Paul's second visit in historical context by simply cross-referencing Paul's biography here with Luke's account in the book of Acts. In Acts 11, verse 28, we read of the prophecy of Agabus, one of the famous predictive prophecies in the New Testament, who through the Holy Spirit predicted the coming famine in Jerusalem, which prompted Paul and Barnabas to take the famine relief money they'd collected from the Gentiles to Jerusalem. And Luke tells us what happens, according to Acts eleven twenty-eight. One of them, a prophet named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius, the Roman emperor. This is one of the few predictive prophecies in the New Testament, and it prompts Paul to return to Jerusalem, as he says, because of a revelation. That's probably Agabus' prophecy here. The famine is mentioned by the Roman historian Suetonius, uh, who speaks of a series of droughts and bad harvests occurring at this time. It's also mentioned by Josephus. So we know that this took place while Claudius was emperor, and we know from other historical sources that this famine had in fact occurred because of drought and prolonged bad harvest. In a private interview with many of the original disciples, those who seemed influential, who were actually in Jerusalem when Paul arrived, Paul said his teaching before them, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. Now this act wasn't so much for their approval, but rather an acknowledgement of their authority, so there would be no division between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Paul did this to ensure that the offering taken from the Gentile churches, from among these Gentiles, could be formally accepted on behalf of the Jerusalem church. And Paul here recounts the details of that meeting to make clear to the Judaizers back in Galatia that his gospel was not only revealed to him by Jesus Christ, but it was the same gospel believed and taught in the Jerusalem church. Paul's gospel was approved by Peter, by James, by John, and the pillars of the church. And that different gospel being preached by the Judaizers, which was no gospel at all, 
that gospel was not approved. In verses 3 through 6, Paul addresses what is perhaps the most sinister threat facing the Galatian churches, the deceptive nature of the actions of the Judaizers, characterized here as false brothers who were secretly sneaking in to spy on the Christian liberty of those who embraced the gospel. Paul uses this occasion to inform the Galatians that Titus, a Gentile, a Greek from the island of Crete, who was traveling with Paul, he was not compelled by the Jerusalem church to be circumcised. And that rams home the point that the Judaizers in Galatia did not have the support of the Jerusalem church, something they may have been claiming. The Judaizers are the innovators, not Paul. And that is a very important point in Paul's defense, given the fact that these false brothers had deceptively infiltrated the ranks of believers at Antioch, as we discover in Acts 15, verse 1, and were teaching a different gospel, which is in reality no gospel at all. This false gospel is teaching that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. These agitators were apparently the same ones deceiving the Galatian Christians, and who will then show up with the Jerusalem Council to protest Paul's doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, only to be rebuffed. Paul condemns these Judaizers by simply recounting their deceitful behavior. People who proclaim the truth do not need to operate in these kinds of deceptive ways. And Paul exposes how they slipped in to spy on our liberty. Specifically in this case, the doctrine that the Gentiles were justified by faith alone, apart from keeping the law of Moses and submitting to circumcision. These false teachers sought to re-enslave the very same Christians for whom Christ had died to set free, thereby denying the gospel that Paul had been preaching. As Paul will go on to say in chapter 5 of verse 1 of Galatians, for freedom Christ has set us free, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In effect, Paul's recounting of these events amounts to a warning to the Galatians that if they give in to the same men whom the apostolic church has rebuked, Christ will be of no value to them. Those willing to be taken in by the Judaizers risk deserting Jesus Christ and falling from grace. These are very high stakes indeed. Reminding the Galatians of what had happened when Paul reported to the leaders of the Jerusalem church, Paul describes in verse 7 the basis for the church in Jerusalem extending to him, Barnabas, and perhaps even to Titus, the right hand of fellowship. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. And here Paul is finishing up the point that began back in verse 1. The leaders of the Jerusalem church added nothing to the message that Paul had been preaching to the Gentiles, to the Galatians, such as the requirement to be circumcised or the need to keep certain aspects of the ceremonial law. All Peter and James and John asked of Paul and Barnabas is, that the Gentile churches remember the poor. And this is important because the Gentiles had brought this offering to the saints in Jerusalem. And so this declaration in no uncertain terms means very clearly circumcision is not part of the gospel. That circumcision is not part of the gospel also is evident in the diverse ministry of the church to both Jew and Gentile. Peter's gospel to the Jews is the same as Paul's gospel to the Gentiles. As Paul states in verses 8 to 10, there was a very positive outcome from the meeting between Paul and the apostolic leadership of the Jerusalem church. The apostles clearly recognized that God was at work in Paul's efforts to reach the Gentiles, his Gentile mission, every bit as much as God was at work in Peter's efforts to reach the Jews scattered throughout Asia Minor. Peter and Paul were preaching the same gospel, albeit to different audiences. The leaders of the church also recognized the grace bestowed upon Paul 
acknowledging God's call of Paul to his apostolic office. They also acknowledged that the mission of Paul and Barnabas was to go back to the Gentiles and to continue preaching to them, and they even extend to Paul the right hand of fellowship. Meanwhile, the apostles in Jerusalem are going to continue their own efforts to reach the Jews by preaching Christ crucified and that gospel of justification by grace alone through faith alone. Paul clearly recognizes that Peter and James, our Lord's own brother, and John, that they're the leaders of the church, picking up on the theme of the church as God's temple, with these three being pillars of that temple, a temple that John is later going to describe in an eschatological or, or end-time sense when referring to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. But this is not the end of the story, because Peter will very soon find himself under great pressure from false teachers, so much so that Peter caves into them by ceasing to enjoy table fellowship with the Gentiles, a move that gives the Judaizers in Galatia much ammunition to use against Paul and his gospel. And so Paul must now confront Peter to his face. As Paul says, the gospel is at stake. And we'll take up that encounter next time when we move into the second half of the chapter and Paul's account of what happened when Peter arrives in Antioch. Well, thanks so much for listening to this edition of the Blessed Hope. And until next time, Maranatha, the Lord come.